Charmed, and welcome back to Let Me Ruin Your Life with me, Serena Shahidi. I'm back. Hello. Another solo episode. I do promise I have guests coming up soon, even though you guys seem to not love that, which I like that you say that. I like that it's very sweet because, first of all, it means you like me. Thank you very much. And second of all, it also means you're avoiding saying you're not a great interviewer, which is the truth. It is the truth of the matter. I don't excel in conversations where I'm not really the center of attention. I'm more of a performer than a conversationalist myself. But anyway, I'm glad to be here. It's October in New York. It's my favorite season. I'm out of my summer hibernation. I don't know why I tend to do that during the summer. You would think it would be the opposite, but alas, no. I think it maybe is just a matter of me needing to go out in knee-high boots and a mink coat, I suppose. But I'm out of my hermit era, as the kids say. I'm beating the hermit allegations, as the kids say. They're always saying that, and you know that about them. And it's my favorite season. It's knee-high boot and miniskirt season. It's my birthday month. I'm turning 23 next week. And you know what? I'll say it. I'm brave enough to say it. It's spooky season. It really is. People josh around all the time. Oh, the girls are saying it's spooky season. They're so basic. Well, what if it is? What about that? Did you ever consider that? What if there's a spook in the air? And what if I'm getting the heebie-jeebies currently? Maybe consider that for a moment before you speak. Anyway, I'm back. Another episode. And this is a special episode. It's a type that I do every now and then. It's a sort of book club book review. As you may know, I love reading and just discussing old books, particularly those relating to like etiquette and lifestyle and that sort of thing. We've done The Rules on here, which is a book from the 90s about the rules that girls should follow when they're dating, and they are very strict. Lots of very specific timelines about when men should call you back. We've done Word to the Wives, which is a homemaking book for 60s housewives. And we've done a recent one, Countess Luann's etiquette book that I'm blanking on the name. That was uh, the latest one. But this book I'm covering today, I have been particularly meaning to read for quite a long time, mostly because I've read a lot about the author, Helen Gurley Brown, and this book she wrote called Sex and the Single Girl. And I'm going to be covering this over two episodes. There's so much to cover. We're doing six chapters this time. I personally will be having a blast. So Sex and the Single Girl will give a little background. It is a book that taught girls in the 60s how to have affairs, flings, we may call them now, unless you're dating Adam Levine, and uh, also simultaneously how to have a life at the same time. Obviously... 1962, this was a time when women were expected to be housewives, avoid singledom at all costs, and this piece of literature is based on the very progressive idea that women can be single and also have their own fulfilling lives. It also includes some very not progressive ideas, which is, of course, the fun part. So if you're thinking, oh God, this is like an advice thing. This is going to be bad advice. It's going to be very old fashioned and heteronormative and not going to apply to my life. You're right. You're absolutely right. And that is what made this such a fascinating read. So the origin of Sex and the Single Girl, uh, Helen Gurley Brown, who we will get to, her husband suggested that she write a book about how a single girl goes about having an affair. And a few little Wikipedia facts. It was rejected from a few publishing houses. It had a chapter on contraceptives originally that was omitted from the final version. It was endorsed on the jacket by Joan Crawford and Gypsy Rose Lee, who I did forget for a moment is different from Gypsy Rose Blanchard, but we're all about learning here. We're all about education. Uh, And the 2003 edition is endorsed on the back cover by the famous Sex and the City's Kim Cattrall. And Sex and the City itself is 
seen by many people as in some ways playing tribute to sex and the single girl. I mean, is that not what it's about? Sex and the single girls, all four of them, or all three and Che Diaz, depending on your preference. So as I said, this book was written by Helen Gurley Brown. If you're unfamiliar, there are a few books written about her. Enter Helen, which I've read, read that in high school when I was working at the Wendy's drive-thru. Bad Girls Go Everywhere and Not Pretty Enough. And her background, so she grew up poor, was considered not pretty enough, as, you know, one of the titles implies. And she will mention this many, many times. So Helen started her career as a secretary. She became very successful in copywriting and advertising. And when she was 37, married David Brown, famous producer, would go on to produce Jaws, And Helen would become the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan for 32 years. And she was the one to really overhaul it from a boring magazine about, like, literature and flower arrangements to, like, how to incorporate donuts into your sex life. So her work had a big impact on the culture, particularly the culture surrounding single women, for better and certainly for worse. On one hand, she began a lot of open conversations about sex and lifestyle, also a lot of very toxic stuff, naturally. Let me just read a few of the headlines from Cosmopolitan at the time. Uh, Why I wear my false eyelashes to bed. I was a nude model. How to tell if he's a married man. She's obsessed with married men, by the way. You'll see. I had a hysterectomy. The bittersweet world of the hillbilly girl. How bitches get riches. That kind of slays. Uh, and women who dare to become men through surgery. Yikes. So before we begin, I want to discuss just the essence of Helen Gurley Brown, because I found that to be the most significant part of this book and her whole saga. And I think it was best captured in an essay by Nora Ephron, whose book of essays, Wallpaper at the Orgy, I believe it's called, I bought recently, had no idea there was an article about Helen Gurley Brown in it, but of course, gobbled it right up. It was Nora Ephron's first essay for Esquire in 1970, and I want to get into it a little. We'll break down the actual book in a few, but I want to get into this. Okay, it starts by talking about Helen at the time. She was being blamed for a lot of the seeming to be moral failings of culture and young women at the time, and she's constantly getting very emotional about it on television. Nora begins it by talking about how Helen was on a show, as she does, and was discussing how a single girl must go to lunch with married men, that a single girl with no other men in her life must somehow make the men who are there serve a purpose. Someone on the panel is like, is this what we want to tell young women? And the audience is like, slay, they very much agree. And when the show ends, Helen Gurley Brown, poor thing, begins to cry. She's a very emotional, very vulnerable woman. The description of her vibe in general is amazing. She wears Rudy Gernreich dresses, David Webb jewelry, a Piget watch, I don't know what that is, expensive hair pieces, custom-cut false eyelashes, but it never quite seems to come together properly. An earring keeps falling off, a wig is askew, a perfectly matched stocking has a run. Okay, relatable, queen. Indie sleaze vibes, way before the time. All of which not-quite-right effect is intensified because Helen Gurley Brown relentlessly talks about her flat chest, her nose job, her split ends, her adolescent acne, her 40-minute regimen of isometrics and exercises to stay in shape. She does not bring up those faults to convince you she is unattractive, but rather to show you what can be done, what any girl can do if she really tries. It gets to the actual profile, I won't read too much. I am in Helen Gurley Brown's office because I am interviewing her, a euphemism for what in fact involves sitting on her couch and listening while she volunteers answers to a number of questions I would never ask. What she is like in bed, for example. Very good. Whether she enjoys sex. Very much. Always has. Why she did not marry until she was 37. Very neurotic. Wasn't ready. It all seems to pour out of her. Her past, her secrets, her fears, her innermost hopes and dreams. Says her husband, David, whether it was group therapy or what, there's nothing left inside Helen. It all comes out. So as mentioned, Helen is obsessed with self-help because she grew up, from her perspective, not saying this myself, basically ugly and poor. She tried everything. Vitamin therapy, group therapy, psychoanalysis, hair therapy, skin therapy. Her persistent self-improvement dazzled her friends. 
She decided the person she wanted to be, the milieu in which she wanted to live, how she wanted to look, said one longtime California associate. In a very real sense, she invented herself. Long story long, Helen essentially grew up ugly and poor, ended up marrying a very successful producer, became extremely successful herself, and now she's obsessed with self-help and the journey that she went on and loves to share, loves to try to help. So that's that on her. I just wanted to get into Helen's vibe because the thing that fascinates me most about this book surprisingly isn't the actual tips, but certainly what they imply about their author, which I think is probably more than intended. So let's go through the chapters. There's six today. Women alone. Oh, come on now. The availables, the men in your life, where to meet them, how to be sexy, nine to five, and my personal favorite, money, money, money. It does start with a short little introduction. This is a republishing of it. I think this is the 2003 version, but it's not updated aside from a short and quite scattered introduction. So she goes through what has improved for single women since she read the book. They don't have to be married by 30. They don't have to feel guilty about sex. There are better career opportunities, and you don't have to be beautiful. This introduction, by the way, it seems like it was written on painkillers. It has, shall I say, Vicodin vibes, VVs. Like, each paragraph is something wildly different about something that's changed throughout the time. Topics include STDs, not wanting to have babies, Artificial insemination, splitting the cost of dates, married men, she's obsessed, and gay men, and whether that is nature or nurture. Anyway, my favorite line, personally, is one of the last. She goes, some famous person, don't remember who, said, life is what happens when you're making other plans. (laughs) Wasn't that John Lennon? I'm obsessed with her not knowing. And assuming it was 2003 when she wrote the introduction, she could have looked it up. I love that, don't remember who, shady, 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 good for her. She goes on to say, there are soul-numbing, devastating days for single women and married ones, even some for the other sex. (laughs) I guess so. I'm counting on you to enjoy the good ones. Make life special for people around you because you've got the love, compassion, the energy, the need inside you to do that. Would you please get started? Exclamation point. I mean, shall we? Let's get started. Chapter one. Women alone? Oh, come on now. Work. So Helen talks about how she got married at 37 to a a hottie producer, apparently. But she is not pretty, not brilliant, didn't go to college, came from a poor family. But she deserved her husband because she worked hard to become the kind of woman who might interest him. She describes single women very affectionately. They're engaging, not a parasite have time to spend on themselves, have time to read and enrich themselves, moves in the world of men, essentially all we would think of as like the perks of not being a housewife. But there is a catch. Isn't there always? There is a catch to achieving single bliss. You have to work like a son of a bitch. Now here's a list of things it doesn't take for a single woman to lead the rich full life. Great beauty. A man grows accustomed to a beautiful face. I mean, very true. How many men married to beautiful women have we seen cheat on people in the past week? (laughs) I mean, it's like on CNN now. Clearly, they're getting accustomed to these beautiful faces. Uh, It doesn't take money. We'll get into money later. Money, money, money. It doesn't take a high-voltage personality. You don't have to be anti-mame. But, I mean, if you can, why not? By the way, if you've never read Anti-Mame, because I feel like it's one of those books that's just like a classic and you always hear people sort of reference the title, but you never think to read it, read it. It slays. And you don't need to be like a type A fireball. So what do you need? You have to work on yourself, baby. You don't chase the glittering life. You lay a trap for it. You tunnel up from the bottom. You must develop style. An apartment alone, even if it's over a garage. I mean, dated. The housing market is not what it used to be. An apartment above a garage is $6,000 a month and comes with like wasps painted to the wall another thing oh my god your figure can't harbor an ounce of baby fat it never looked good on anyone but babies jesus christ i mean i don't want to act like this is surprising for a book written in 1962 i mean i feel like the craziest part about this line is that 
first of all, I'm sure it didn't cause any controversy at the time. And I don't think it would have until like very recently, like up until probably the mid 2000s earliest. This was just fine of a line to drop. And ironically, the last thing you must cook well, but like not for yourself, apparently. Food is for men. Speaking of men, chapter two, the availables, the men in your life. She starts off by, for some reason, saying, and this truly doesn't make sense to me, there aren't enough men for every girl. (laughs) Not in my experience. (laughs) Over four million more single women than men at the last count. Am I dumb or does this not make sense? The only way I can think of the statistic being true is if there were just like a lot of single lesbians but aren't they referring i would imagine they're referring to unmarried people and there was no same-sex marriage so how is that true maybe this was just like a u.s statistic and all the men were going abroad and all the lesbians were staying in the u.s i don't know this doesn't this doesn't make sense to me is anyone good at statistics and can explain how this works um but i feel like this is still a narrative now that there's like there's so few single guys in the world and so many single girls, which is not true. Like, how would that be true? Also, go outside, and you'll see that's not true. Literally go to Midtown. As someone who lives in Midtown, I say bravely. I admit, with courage, there are plenty of men. (laughs) Although I did, I read a study, and the interesting thing about this study is that I didn't read it. I watched it, and it wasn't a study. It was a TikTok. But I read this study about how when men see an unattractive woman, it like lights up the part of the brain that gets annoyed. Like they see an unattractive woman and they're like, oh, I'm annoyed. But women just kind of don't register unattractive men as like being men. Like they just aren't seen as options, I guess. And that might be the misunderstanding here is that unattractive single men just don't really register to women as single. Anyway, Helen lists a bunch of men who may be in your life. Bows, pals, lovers, the mailroom boy, chairman of the board, the shoe salesman who always remembers your size, pervert, the milkman, the fuller brush man, they're usually darlings. I googled that. I guess they were door-to-door salesmen. Cute. She also lists male family members. She's like, and your dad. And I was like, whoa, Helen, what in the world? Until she explained what she was trying to do with this list saying, okay, you ought to have about 30 men to keep you from feeling like you live in a manless world. I guess she felt like she lived in a manless world as a single girl. I mean, I love men, but that feels like a a net positive. I mean, statistically. Anyway, we're classifying the men we actually go out with. Let's start with the eligibles. These are the men you could marry, maybe, Such as the dreamboat you meet on the ski train and would be happy to meet at City Hall the next day. My God. But he isn't ready to take himself off the market. Or the serious chap who falls hard but you don't quite share his enthusiasm for the Civil War. I can't believe Civil War dudes date back to at least the 60s. I thought there were just a couple in high school. Maybe it was a a new development. Or just uh, an unfortunate fluke. People really have stayed the same. They're still Civil War guys. But I can't... I mean, you meet one to two of these dudes a year? I see why women were so desperate to get married. If it's true that one of the top one to two, maybe 1.5 guys you meet in a year is a Civil War guy, I might just be in it for the challenge at that point, just to find at least like a War of 1812 guy, someone with some originality. Next category... The eligibles, but who needs them? These are the weirdies, the creepies, the dullies, the snobs, the hopeless neurotics, and mama's darlings. You can meet three of these a week. And that's back then, baby. With dating apps, you can meet an unlimited amount. Thank you, technology. How exciting. Next is the Don Juans. These are the guys who have an unrequited need to make girls fall in love with them and an all-consuming vanity which kept them changed to their haberdashers. (laughs) Okay. She talks about how Don Juan's make you lose self-respect because you're aware he's undeserving of you, but you're still hooked. Some of you may relate. Many people I know would relate. No comment. There's a fake conversation where this like hypothetical slut talks to you about holding you and taking your dress off and then invites you to a cocktail party. I mean, this is a nice little reminder that even this like sleazy little player 
player player is inviting girls to cocktail parties. So if the man playing you isn't doing even that, you're with someone who's lower than the lowest of the low. Just saying. Just my opinion. If the men being talked about 60 years ago who destroyed women's self-esteem are better than whoever the man is that's texting you to come over at 2 a.m., maybe assess a few things in your life. And that was the 60s. Not a decade, I don't know if you know this, not a decade known for its fantastic, fabulous treatment of women. These men are described as detail-oriented, romantic, patient, and sick in the head, of course. And the thesis is sort of involvement with these men is inevitable in a way, and in many ways necessary for growth. She notes that you can be warned about them and still walk right into the trap. This is, I mean, unfortunately, pretty true. Not necessarily for yourself if you have self-respect, but you can't really save someone else from this type of dude. Boy, have I tried. They usually need to ride it out, unfortunately, and learn. Learn a lesson. Learn a learning lesson. You ever hear someone say that? This is a learning lesson. It's like learn a learning lesson about speaking. My God. Next type of man. I mean, she's a freak. Okay, the next type of man is the married man. This was one of the parts of the book that caused a lot of controversy when it came out. And I mean, I see why. I certainly understand, especially because Helen says at one point specifically that she doesn't want any affairs in her marriage, which I'd say is a pretty standard belief. Certainly understandable. She describes the married man who's cheating on his wife as much maligned because his girlfriend doesn't understand why he won't get a divorce. And, of course, in a wild turn of events, the reason he won't get a divorce is because he doesn't want one. I mean, maybe I'm cuckoo crazy for this. I feel like he's much maligned because he's cheating on his wife. Or does maligned imply that it's unfair? Let me look this up. Speak about someone in a spitefully critical manner. Hmm. I wouldn't say he's maligned then. I'd say he gets some shit because he's cheating on his wife. Not because he won't commit to someone else. I've never been like, that man won't leave his wife or his mistress. What a dirty little commitment phobe. How disgusting. There's a long pros and cons list about dating and married men. Here are a few of the cons. I mean, can you believe there are cons? What could they possibly be? He almost never gets a divorce, of course. He's useless on weekends and holidays. You can't introduce each other as your beau. He tells lies. I mean, yeah, he's telling lies to his wife. Of course he's going to tell them to you. He has a screaming fit if you look at another man, despite the fact that he's cheating on his wife with you. I mean, how Helen could read this over, which I'm not quite sure she did, and not be like, oh, this is terrible. Like this, I'm describing a bad person. I don't know. But she lists some pros. She does list some pros. He's faithful. To what? Adultery? Sinning? He's passionate. He has plenty of praise and appreciation. Of course he is. And he's often generous with gifts and money. Yeah, because you're the one who could ruin his life if you tell anyone you're seeing him. Those gifts and money are bribes. Not to tell anyone about his affair. And he will give you solid advice on, like, taxes and shit. I mean, I think he needs advice. Maybe not necessarily about the IRS. Maybe about some morals. Heard of them? And as much as I don't agree with this entire section, this quote did make me laugh. It seems to me the solution is not to rule out married men, but to keep them as pets. While they are using you to varnish their egos, you use them to add spice to your life. I say them advisedly. One married man is dangerous. A potpourri can be fun. (laughs) And she also says she doesn't feel too bad for the wives in these situations because a good wife will get her husband back every time. I don't even know what this means. You don't feel bad for a woman who has to get her husband back? I feel like having to convince someone at all, like not to abandon you and potentially your kids for a little fling is certainly something to pity. Anyway... Want to get whiplash? (laughs) The next man is the homosexual. This is a mess. This is, I mean, I don't need to say it. So Helen has known girls who even married homosexuals and didn't know until their wedding night. She tells, very casually, the craziest story of all time. One of her dearest, dearest friends 
a charmer with a successful plastic business, said he lived with his brother. One night, the three of them are driving home from a party, and the brother tried to steer the car off of a cliff. Helen thought it was just, like, caused by he drank too much or whatever. Turns out it was a lover's quarrel because the quote-unquote brother resented Helen. Maybe for her fucked-up wig. Before you ruled homosexual men out of your life, however, let's consider, are they really monsters? Some very famous and beautiful women are married to them. First of all, obviously deeply offensive. This whole thing in homosexuality obviously is. Just felt like I had to acknowledge that, even though there's, you know, not much else to say about that. Quite the obvious. I am kind of obsessed, in a non-positive way, with the idea that the reason you wouldn't marry a gay man is like, he might be a monster? That's your issue? It is true, though. Some very famous and beautiful women are married to gay men. Carrie Fisher married a gay man. Love her. Maybe the rest of us should. I've never done it. I wouldn't know. I mean, it gets into some weird stuff that I don't even want to quote about gay men like having emotional problems that don't respond to psychoanalysis. I wonder why, considering we're probably defining responding to psychoanalysis by not being gay anymore. After that, speaking of whiplash, she does go on to say homosexuals make wonderful friends, loyal, sympathetic, entertaining, good confidants with the most exquisite taste and the most handsomely done apartments with the best parties. They are often devastatingly attractive, and a girl can't surround herself with too many attractive men. I mean, I can't argue with that, you Freudian freak. And the last two types of men are just the man who's going through a divorce and the younger man, who are both whatever. Chapter 3, Where to Meet Them. Let's find out. Let's go out on the town. Number one, your job. They don't have to be in the office. They can be, you know... All sorts of salesmen, consultants, suppliers, even naughty chaps from the IRS who are auditing the corporate books. She says, if the men at work aren't your type, change your job. (laughs) This reminds me of, of Countess Luann's book where she's like, if you want to meet quality men, get into real estate. Like, okay, drastic. She recommends that if your company doesn't allow dating, but there's good material at hand, date anyway, get fired and leave under a romantic cloud. Once again, same as the the housing situation, not written for the economy we're in right now. Especially since if it's a man and a woman, like, guess who's going to face the most consequences? Guess who's getting fired, baby, under a, a romantic cloud? Good luck. And lastly, one line reads, The quality of men you meet at work is usually pretty satisfactory. At least they are not chaps who go to movies all day in hopes of sitting next to a nine-year-old girl. Helen, Jesus Christ. I mean, sure, but my God, I hope that's not your standard. Oh, some of the things she says out of nowhere. Oh, my God. It's like having a friend who you're like in a group social situation with and they just say the wildest things out of nowhere and you have to do like live crisis response PR. Anyway. Next way to meet men, friends of friends, parentheses, personal sponsorship. This is apparently the best way to meet them, even though we've already changed our jobs to meet them. It's easy, saves time. Helen met her husband through a setup that took years. She asked if there was any hope as they went into their third fiscal year. I mean, this is true. Setups can be great for many people. Depends on who you are. I'm not a girl you set up with someone personally. You have to be someone who's like a a good sell on paper. Looks good on paper. No one's going to set me up with anyone because I have have an appeal, but it's one that needs to be experienced. No one's going to be like, you should go out with my friend Serena. She has a certain je ne sais quoi. They'll be like, what does she do for a living? You know, no comment. Next one, blind dates. Parentheses, you're on your own. This can happen if somebody gives someone your phone number, a friend with a date who brought a friend. Another kind of blind date is when you decide to take a chance on the voice who has dialed your number by mistake. He does, after all, sound a little like Lawrence Oliver? Lawrence Olivier? Is that a typo? And will look more like Sir Lawrence's Richard III, beak nose and all. But let us not be cynical. I mean, work. I guess I can't judge someone meeting a man through an accidental phone call because I've used dating apps where I went out with them without even talking on the phone. So, good for her, I guess. 
active sports. Never mind when they handed out the muscular coordination, you were in the powder room redoing your mascara. <laughs> she says men like sports. How can you afford not to? Easily, Helen. Actually, quite easily. I cannot like a lot of things men like. Bars. She says, looking at a bar, you would think that would be the place. But there's a catch. They act funny. <laughs> Don't we all? They figure you being there makes you lonely or you have nowhere else to go. I mean, as the kids say, me. Me AF. Do the kids still say that? That feels very 2016. I guess I was a kid then. But she does say vacation spots are an okay place to go to bars. I don't know why it's different there, but it is. I mean, this is definitely dated. I feel I've never been to a bar in the 1960s. There's a big barrier between me and that, a little thing I like to call time. But I have seen a lot of movies from the 60s, and it is my understanding that uh, men went there to drink whiskey and sulk, and women went there to, like, seduce and kill men. So I guess that sounds about right, that it wouldn't be the place. Next up is parties. This is another one of Helen's little things about how she's ugly, basically. <laughs> she says this is good if you're the pretty busty girl who only has to stand still, draw in her breath to draw a crowd. But she, as a plain girl, has to be warmed up to. But she does say that the best parties are small dinner parties, which I agree with. I think it's a great place to meet a man. I certainly have. Next is Get Acquainted Clubs, which were like the, the Lonely Hearts Clubs advertised in the papers, which have always sounded very like intriguing to me historically, but also probably a bit sad if you actually attended one. The weird, this is not Helen's problem with it. This is what she has to say. I tell you, a party without a single married man in it is kind of spooky and dull. What is wrong with you? <laughs> she is obsessed with married men, especially for a married woman. Like, wouldn't you not want to endorse single girls and married men, considering you're sort of living with one? Also, like, the last thing I would say about married men, you know, I have nothing inherently negative to say about them, but I'm not going to say, oh, they really liven up a party. And it depends on the guy. I'm not trying to say someone's not fun because they're married, but I'm not like, here comes Dan, who has a family in Connecticut. Now the party's really started. I was getting bored with all these available men who are free to party as late as they want. It's spooky without having someone here to leave by eight. Next is political clubs. Pretty swinging, usually. Next, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh my God. She tells a story of a friend of a friend who did not have a drinking problem, but went to an open meeting where she ended up sitting next to a famous writer. I mean, that is so dark. That sounds like the worst rom-com imaginable. And she also says, I suggest you pick a wealthy chapter of AA. That's your problem with meeting a man in AA? Ugh, I met him at an AA meeting. I crashed. As someone who has no drinking problem whatsoever, what if he's poor? My mind would go, okay, first, I have to explain to him that I crashed the meeting of the organization that, like, may be holding his life together right now. And also, he's not supposed to date if he's recently out of addiction. Famously a rule. Pretty famously an AA rule. And I would imagine a good one, too. Vacations? She tells a story that I, I like. I think this is cute. A girl she knows who went to Europe, armed with a bunch of names and addresses, a family, a family of friends and friends of friends who lived there, sent them letters, said she would love to meet them, and just waited for them to invite her places. I mean, that sounds like a great way to at least to make friends. Sounds like you could have a great time. It's sort of the old-fashioned equivalent of influencers posting on their close friend story that they're going to be in L.A. soon. And does anyone want to hang out and, like, record a podcast? Traveling on business, blah, 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 who cares? Planes, trains, and boats. Sit next to a man. If a lady is about to sit next to you, God forbid, pile your hat box, coat, and newspapers in the seat next to you and go to sleep immediately. Remove everything and wake up smiling when a man appears. That sounds exhausting. I'm so glad nowadays all you have to do is forget your AirPods at home and get on the subway. You're golden. 
sales conventions. What the hell, Helen? She's hopping all around town just trying to find a man. Convention. I'm just picturing the, the level of loneliness it would take to try to pick up people at a convention of any sort. Business banquets and luncheons. She does not endorse this as a place to meet men, shockingly, even though she did so with AA, uh, because a man at a business luncheon is in one of his male moods. He doesn't want to talk to women. And I do know exactly what she's talking about. When men talk business, there's no way of getting through to them. The other night, oh my God, I joined my friends like banker friends for drinks on the town because I was already out and I was like, let's keep the party going. Spoiler alert, the party did not keep going. I sat down and immediately was like, oh, they're talking Microsoft Excel. They're debating target schools. Like, I do not belong here. At one point, I literally, I slapped the table. Let me me do a sound effect. I went, so what do you guys do for fun? And the answer was this, I guess. I couldn't believe, I was like, oh my God. There's no fun having even in this conversation. They're out for drinks, not at work. Not that I was like trying to pick any of them up, <laughs> just to be clear. But I expected at least like someone to mention a hobby. Anyway, the man next door, shopping in men's departments, brief interludes like waiting for the bus, buying a magazine, guiding your groceries through the checkout line. These are like the rom-com meet-cutes that are probably not going to happen. Although the grocery store was an example. And I will say, I think everyone should be dating from the grocery store. Man, woman, gay, straight. Everyone grocery shops. You can tell if they're single or not based on what they're buying. You know, basket versus cart. And there's just an undeniable sexual energy in many, many grocery stores. Uh, She has quite the bit on man bait. So let's say you're glammed up, you're ready to catch a man. How can you do it without starting a conversation yourself? Her first tip is a lapel pin with a message printed on it because people will want to read it and they'll have to have something to say about it as not to be rude. I mean, this just seems like not even a way to pick people. This is like going to a party where you know one person. I also love how this is so 60s. She goes, you can write to Alan Adler, 8626 Sunset Boulevard, Los Angeles, who made my pins. Other suggestions include a loaded charm bracelet, unusual jewelry, a controversial book, like one by Karl Marx. I feel like that's not, that's not the kind of conversations you want. These are just like ways to peacock. If you're at the beach or pool, have the maddest beach towel you can lay hands on. Have a memorable beach hat or two. (laughs) Drive a funny car. I think I'm realizing that I might have unintentionally been doing all of this. For all I know, I might not even be attractive. It might just be the Betsy Johnson jewelry. So now that we've learned how to meet men in, I mean, ways that I wouldn't think of, I'll certainly give her that. We'll move on to chapter four, how to be sexy. A sexy woman enjoys her sexuality and has made it past the idea that there's shame in that. And of course, people have a pre-selection towards who they're attracted to. For example, what their mother looked like. For another example, what their mother didn't look like. I wish this was the first or last Freudian reference. She goes on to discuss what she likes to call girl-enhancing trappings, aka like fashion and accessories. She tells a story about an ex-roommate of hers who was gaga who was Lady Gaga for an executive at her firm, despite the fact that he apparently had tiny little hands and a tiny little head. And this girl put on all the sexiness she could, the dresses, the makeup, the airs. And the man did not care, did not want his tiny little hands on her. But she married within the year, so I guess it kind of worked. I mean, I would have lied and just said, you know, she got the guy with the tiny head, but that's why I'm not writing books. So what is sexy, according to Helen Gurley Brown? Clean hair and lots of it, (laughs) with the exception that the next point is no hair under your arms, legs, or around your nipples. Not sexy also is food between your teeth, baggy stockings, bitten fingernails, and borrowing money. You know, this is interesting because I read once that like tangential thinking and talking 
is a big sign that someone's not doing well mentally in the head, which, by the way, is also fully the premise of this podcast, but whatever. I, that is how Helen Gurley Brown seems to think. And allegedly, it's like a red flag in the head area. If someone's talking about something and they're like, this food tastes like dog food. My cousin got a dog. Isn't it crazy how your cousin is your parents' sibling's kid? Then, like, you're supposed to check up on that person. Um, what else is sexy? Being able to sit still. It's not sexy to talk about members of your family and how cute or awful they are. Just fuck them. Gossip isn't sexy. Other things that are sexy. Yes, she's back to what is sexy. I mean, who needs an editor? Being seen in bed, clothes that fit, a black dress, costy perfume, good health, being delighted to be called on the telephone. No, thank you. And liking men. (laughs) Fair enough. The art of flirting. Flirting is mostly just looking. I mean, this is incredibly true. She recommends look straight into his eyes, deep and searchingly, then lower your gaze. Go back to your companions or magazine. Now look at him again the same way. Then drop your, do it three times. Okay. Being sexy is being charming. And being charming is having total awareness. There's a story. There's two girls at this party had been babbling, babbling, babbling about this new office manager who uh, one of their mothers who was there didn't know. And the charmer, a little charmer over there, says, you know, mother, he's kind of like Joe Winslow at the bank, sort of Prussian. (laughs) Mother was back in the conversation. And the charmer, she puts everything in terms of you. You would have loved it. You would have fainted. I mean, this is very important socially, Romantically or not, just bringing someone else into a conversation. There's nothing I hate more than when you're trying to have a conversation with, like, say, three people. And one of them tries to talk to you about something the other person has no idea about. And it's like you're just performing a conversation, like, for them to enjoy. I don't like that one bit. They don't give a fuck about this guy, Jacob, we're talking about. Why don't we explain who Jacob is? It's just so uncomfortable. And it feels so cocky to be like, we're talking about something you have no clue about. Enjoy. And last thing about charmers. They tell you when people have said something nice about you and never when they haven't. The emphasis on that second part. I have some friends who will send me stuff like when someone says something mean about me online and they just come across it and they're like, oh my God, can you believe I just I just saw this and it's about you. And I'm like, that is a tweet that says they hope I get hit by a truck. So, you know, thank you. Really needed that today. I was having a bad day and I was really looking for something to make it worse. Anyway, on femininity, some girls hate men because they secretly envy their superior advantages, their jobs, their ability to exploit. Okay. Yeah, I'm just, I'm Jelly Clarkson of your ability to exploit. Man haters may secretly envy men's penises. Helen, I mean, what in the world? What is your. Why are you so into Freud? Was he married? Is that why? A lot of her tips on being feminine are just like, be grateful men want to sleep with you. Don't be rude when you reject them. Which I hate the idea that femininity is like, let everything slide. Be flattered by everything. She recommends saying to a man to reject them, you're most attractive. You're really lovely. But do you honestly suppose I can sleep with every man who asks me? The answer for now is no. I don't like the need to call him most attractive, but I will admit, do you honestly suppose I can sleep with every man who asks me is a pretty good line. Because men do want like a prudish woman who says yes to them. And I feel like that phrase, at least, at the very least, pokes a little hole in that. Let's talk lifestyle. Beyond just men. Chapter five, nine to five. Actually, not beyond just men, because the first thing she says is that a job is one way of getting to men. It provides money to dress yourself, dress your apartment up for them, and it defines a single woman by what she does rather than who she belongs to. Okay, progressive. But how do women make it? Uh, Many times, accidentally. And it's all about becoming accident prone in the right way. I like that. I like that a lot. I think that's true. I don't think success should be this linear thing that you plan out. You can you know, get successful that way. I don't think you can get successful in any way that's fulfilling. Anyone I know who's like, 
I'm in med school because my parents were doctors and I've always wanted to be a doctor is so miserable. And I mean, so are the rest of us, but at least we see a way out. I love this one quote. I have it on a sticky note next to my desk. If the path before yours, I can't read my handwriting. If the path before yours is clear, you're probably on someone else's. Too true. Too freaking true. And lets me justify the fact that I have nothing in my life planned out. But it's never led me astray. Mostly because because it's not leading me anywhere. Here are her success tips, which she introduces by saying, I hereby set down Mother Brown's 12 rules for squirming, worming, inching, and pinching your way to the top. And this is specifically for offices, which is something I knew nothing about. I was an intern, but like, whatever. I was steaming clothes. I was organizing color samples. Don't demand instant glamour. Give yourself five years to dry behind the ears. She had 17 jobs before falling into the secretarial job that led to copywriting, that led to the fun and the money. And she was writing, this was pre-Cosmopolitan, by the way, when she was writing this. This was when she was a big advertising girly. A little girl boss. I'm not going to read all of these. Some of these are boring. Dress better than you can afford. The next chapter is about money. She has a weird attitude about money where she's like, you don't need money. I used to be poor. You don't need money. You just need to spend a ton of it to be a good single girl or else you're bad at being a single girl. Another tip, be a woman and don't try to outsmart men. Let me skim right past that. I can't stop at every, every little phrase and be like, low key, this is sexist. We'll be here all day. It's 1962, baby. We know what's happening. Finish the projects. She recommends you keep your promises to yourself, even if it's spending an entire Sunday in bed reading movie magazines and drinking hot chocolate. I love that. That is, my therapist always tells me that. He's like, if you're going to be on your phone fucking around, set some time to be intentionally on your phone fucking around. Like, make it a promise to yourself. She says, career girls are sexy. A man likes a challenge like a career girl. It feeds his ego. I think it's, I don't know. It's so interesting how she talks about having a job in terms of like having money to dress for men and meeting men at the job and being a sexy little career girl. And it's like, girl, you were the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan for 32 years. Surely that wasn't the only reason you were at your job, the way you're making it seem. She also says having a career is the greatest preparation for marriage. You know what this is giving? This is very like, have you ever heard your friend's mom refer to a young woman as getting an MRS degree? Like a Mrs. degree, just going to school to find a man? It's giving that. I was listening to this celebrity memoir book club episode. That's been my pod lately. That and trashy divorces. And they were talking about how Nowadays, it's like even like I'm not saying this to be disparaging, but even quote unquote trophy wives need to be like well-educated girl bosses. You have to put together this whole career kind of with the end goal of just like finding a man who's going to be impressed by it. It's very much like the Amal Clooney effect trademark where we see women do all sorts of incredible things in their career, but like think of the finish line as whoever's arm they ended up on like you should be a career woman because men like independent women or just because you found a career you liked but geez louise helen ends the chapter of course she does with a paragraph about sleeping with your boss to get ahead she does say you can make career advancements if he's promised as much but at the end of the day you're probably better off learning how to do your job and you know the boring technical shit because it's harder to find a girl who can read a statistical report than who can sleep with the boss what is a statistical report let me look this up did i learn this at fit did i learn this when i was a fashion business major a statistical report informs readers about a particular subject or project isn't that anything i think my diary is a statistical report about you know insanity but still that's my subject but let's move on shall we to the last chapter potentially my favorite chapter six money 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 and it begins after much 
talk in her career about how she used to be poor with the statement, quite the statement, nobody likes a poor girl. She is just a drag. Helen said, fuck those broke bitches. This is so interesting to me because Helen is like, very much, I used to be poor, I used to struggle, but also it's morally wrong to be poor and struggling and nobody likes you, you broke bitch. She says, it takes money to be a single girl who people don't feel sorry for. I mean, this is kind of true. It sucks that those are, you know, our values. But I think certainly, like, a man is seen as an accomplishment that's, like, equal to or even better than money. And, like, don't get me wrong, money isn't everything. I don't want to be grind set vibes. But I would say it's a lot more universally positive than a man. Having any old guy is not necessarily a good thing. Having any old bills absolutely is. They certainly have utility. Can't say the same about some of your men. Now, Helen opens up in detail about being poor. Her father died when she was 10, and a few years later, her sister got polio, and those medical expenses basically ate away at almost all of the insurance money that they got from their father. Uh, Her sister started working at a radio survey company. Her mom worked at the Sears Marking Room for 50 cents a day. Helen answered fan mail at a radio station for $6 a week, I believe. I'm going on this page. It's based on memory. They also lived in a tiny house with gophers tunneling their way on up. You could hear the gophers scratching. We never knew what night they might make it on through. (laughs) I mean, that sounds horrible. I feel bad. Gophers? Gophers a-scratching? So Helen becomes quite the penny pincher. Long story long. And she has some money-saving tips for us. Here's some general tips. Scrimp on what isn't sexy or beautiful or really any fun so you can afford what is. I feel like this is terrible financial advice, but I can't say I don't follow it. Like, I'm not buying health food, but I'm buying accessories. I'm on Poshmark. Don't think I'm not. Don't spend on what you don't need. Don't pay more when you can pay less. I mean, what are we doing here? Of course. Now, some money tips for different aspects of daily life. The first section is for living. This is why I'm like getting Vicodin vibes, VVs from this book. Because what is this formatting? Anyway, money-saving tips for living. (sighs) One of the first tips, take extra jobs. Quote, who are you to be too tired? (laughs) Girl, this whole book is about overhauling your entire life for the chance to meet a guy on the train and move your hatbox and your newspapers and working a full-time job at the same time. That's who they are to be too tired. They're following your advice. And also, like, who are you to be too tired? That doesn't matter. The only people with big, significant answers to the question, who are you, probably have staff. She recommends you negotiate with everybody. She says, write fan letters to companies because sometimes they send you samples. I mean, rest in peace, Helen Gurley Brown. You would have loved PR packages. She says she wrote the president of Woolite for Woolens detergent to say she successfully washed her hair in it and he sent a dozen cartons now this is insane uh for example quick little point why didn't she write to a shampoo company was she just writing to every company just every corporation in the world being like i'm obsessed i'm living for your wool detergent (laughs) it slays Was she writing to every company and that just happened to be like the one person who sent her free shit? I'm assuming so, because there's only one example. I mean, if like, if this doesn't work to get samples, you're just writing fan letters to companies using up your stationery. My God. I mean, maybe it's no different than like when influencers DM companies, which I've never had the nerve to do and be like, hey, love you guys. Can I get some free shit? That takes courage. I don't even know who I would ask that to. Big Pharma, probably. Um, Borrowing money. She can only justify it for major surgery, long unemployment, family members in trouble, or being sued, as you do. But lending, she tolerates. Specifically, lending money 
to men, I'm assuming, because she says, if you love him and he's desperate, well, that's your business. Girl, you're desperate. You can't borrow money, but you can lend it to a man in the 60s. It's the 60s and you're lending a man money. A man you apparently picked up by like dedicating your entire life to being desirable. You picked up a career, an apartment, you stopped eating. I mean, what in the world? You moved all your possessions on the train and pretended to be awake for him. And I did Google it. Women made like not much more than half of what men made back then. Let him borrow from someone else. My God. All this work for a man who's going (laughs) to ask for money. What kind of cokeheads are you picking up doing active sports? Anyway, her money tips for eating. Give up chewing gum, candy bars, starchy snack, etc., etc. I mean, are we surprised? Cook with powdered skim milk. Gross. Try to like kidneys, hearts, liver, and brains because they're more nutritious and cheaper. Gross. Bring your own lunch to work. Yogurt, carrot sticks, and fruit are glamour girl fodder. First of all, glamour girl, you were just talking about liver and brains. But also, that's like a 250 calorie lunch. Jesus Christ, this had me thinking about like historical nutrition for women in particular, because of course, I've heard of all the crazy fad diets of the 20th century. I actually did a project on them at FIT. I took a human nutrition class. I had to take a science class. I was like, let me do some made up shit. And sometimes you read about it. And it's like, how is anyone alive? They couldn't have been eating carrots all day. How, you know, these people reproduced. Or else us young people, brag, wouldn't be here. Anyway, I googled it. Most people were not eating carrots all day. It turns out. The average American in 1961, the year before this book was published, consumed 2,880 calories, which is compared to 3,600 today on average. And I don't know if these figures are adjusted for spillage and waste, because in my research I found out those are statistically significant, but still, they're both over... 2,000 calories by a bit. So I genuinely don't know if these women, like especially in certain circles, were eating like 700 calories a day or if they were lying about it because it's just not in vogue to be eating calories. I don't know. I'm guessing somewhere in the middle. But don't eat yogurt, carrot sticks, and fruit for lunch. Not enough. Also, maybe this is just me, but if you've ever eaten carrots on an empty stomach... It's like doing a tequila shot on an empty stomach. It, like, eats away at you. Money tips for dating. Let a man pay, basically. I mean, obviously, especially for the 60s. Imagine going out with Don Draper, and he's like, Do you want to go splitsies? Shopping. Don't buy something you don't like just because it's on sale. Decide on something specific you want and wait for it to be on sale, then pounce. As for picking up odd little dresses for $13, that is a luxury you can't afford, at least in my opinion. You need to look glamorous every minute. Okay, now ignoring for the moment the fact that adjusting for inflation makes that figure about 10 times the price now. I buy dresses for $13 in 2022. And granted, you know, people have become a lot more low maintenance now, so you can wear a literal $13 dress and still have a shot at being the number one glamour girl, beauty queen in the establishment. But something, okay, something's not adding up. And the prices have not been updated in this book. Like she talks at one point about $75 rent, which is like $750 now. At one point, she does talk about making $6 a week. And now she's acting like over two weeks worth of that salary is too cheap for one dress. What are you on about? I feel like I noticed that a lot of people with like rags to riches stories, they'll talk about the poorest they've ever been. They always talk about it, by the way, in exact figures. You hear exactly how much they were making when they were poor, even though you never hear them talk about how much they make a week now. They're like, I used to be poor, but you don't have to give stuff up if you're poor. And then they give financial advice that applies for the richest they've ever been. You know what I'm talking about? When people are like, I lived in a 100-square-foot apartment with three roommates and 12 gophers. My money-saving tips? Buy Balenciaga on sale. 
Like maybe that's helpful for someone, but we want to hear your money saving tips for when you were writing fan mail to wool detergent to wash your hair with. I want to know what you were doing then. Gift giving, buy Christmas gifts throughout the year at sales and make your own presents. I mean, some of these steps are so obvious. There's a point in the Nora Ephron article where she's like, Helen recommends cleaning up the trash in your place before you have people over, because apparently that never occurred to her readers. And it's, uh, I mean, this is, this is your time. You're writing a book. This is your time to give all your best life advice for single girls. And you're like, have you heard of a sale? Did you know you can get something for less money when there's a sale? We want to hear what else you use for shampoo. Uh, dressing. Never buy anything in a hurry. Don't have too many clothes. Wash your own sweaters in wool light. She's obsessed. It's, it's all wool detergent and married men for this woman. She's literally a fan. She's exhibiting fan behavior towards wool detergent. And why is that even a tip? If not, like, to promote wool light. Is this SpawnCon? Is this 60s SpawnCon? Do you need to add hashtag ad so you don't get reported to the FTC? What is going on here? And last but not least, we have saving. Suppose you've managed to save a little money. Helen, girl, we're buying $100 coats with $6 salaries. We have not managed to save a little money. She gives 12 rules for making your own investments and says a small portfolio of stocks is very sexy. And that is all for Money, Money, Money and the six chapters of this episode. My concluding thoughts so far. Um, I mean, it sounds difficult to find a man in the 60s. I did not realize how drastic these actions would be. I figured, like, you know, this book is about having little flings. You can find a man anywhere, but you're building a stock portfolio to be sexy. You're crashing AA meetings. You're meeting two Civil War guys a year. And that's the best you can do. My God. I mean, I know there's a lot of ideas about like how hard dating is now. And like, I'm sure it's harder to find a meaningful relationship in particular with just the commodification of dating. But it seems awfully like it's a lot easier to just meet someone in the first place. You can get on a dating app. You can be the only other person on the train who's not wearing AirPods. There you go. And I think it's very easy to be like, oh, girls back then, so desperate for a man, so patriarchal, they should be ashamed of themselves. And to be fair, first of all, they did often need to rely on a man financially. There was a lot more social pressure. And I mean, I guess we're learning it was just less easy to find options. It makes sense that women didn't want to like casually date and find themselves first before they committed to a marriage if they had to go to a political club just to meet a random guy i mean jesus so did i learn anything not really (laughs) definitely not like tips that i'll take away from my personal life i feel like i learned a lot about the difficulties of being a single girl back when it wasn't the norm to be a single girl especially for like quote-unquote older women because Helen Gurley Brown did get married at 37. That's pretty old for back then. And I certainly learned about her. I find Helen Gurley Brown to be very interesting as a figure. There's a certain, like, the self-creation with her background and her self-help obsession that is, like, interestingly somewhat freed from the sexist ideas of the time and obviously also very much adhering to them in these, like, often desperate attempts to become the type of woman that a man she wants would want. I feel like you think of women who stayed single in the past, and you're like, oh, they must have not cared about men at all and just had fun. But they needed to care to have fun. They couldn't just swipe right. I don't know why I was expecting a lot more of, like, a carefree Samantha type. But she is someone who cares deeply about who she is, what men think of her, and almost has the, like grind mindset with these ideas of like if you're plain just become sexy like me and work on yourself and buy the right clothes and if you're poor just work hard and buy all this and you know there's truth to that there's factors you can control but if it were that simple she would have never been like poor or ugly quote unquote for long at all 
I think a lot of it is very self-conscious, understandably, just seeing old versions of herself and other women and being like, stop being poor and ugly. You're obsessed with being poor and ugly. Stop it right now. Because I don't like that I was ever that way. But obviously, a very fun book to read, a look into the single girl culture of your and we are only halfway through. So next time, we'll be covering the rest of the single Cosmo Girl lifestyle. Which includes the apartment, the caring and keeping of everybody, the shape you're in, uh-oh, the wardrobe, kisses and makeup, the affair from beginning to end, and the rich, full life. So I'm very excited to learn more about the past, to learn more about women and men and Freud. So thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next time. As always, you can follow me Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, GlamDemon2004. I have an Instagram for the podcast, Let Me Ruin Your Life Pod. You can DM me for any ideas or questions or silliness, whatever you want. Okay, I'm going to go crash an AA meeting in Tribeca. Thanks for listening. Bye, sweetie.